Have you been exploring movies at all at home? Well, like I said, my life hasn't changed much, so not really. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I just don't have the time anymore because yeah. I'm not doing a podcast on it. Yeah, I was just curious. You know, everything's being released at home in some form or fashion. So I've, I've bought Onward, which I, I did catch in theaters before all this started going down. So I've seen it, but I want to watch it again. And uh, Sonic, I saw in theaters, and it's out at home now. So I want to watch oh, that yeah. again. Oh, yeah, I do want to see Sonic. I liked, I liked Sonic. If for no other reason than uh, Jim Carrey. I mean, yeah, my yeah. goodness, that just looks amazing. Well, and you know, there's almost like some sort of need to support all the people who work so hard to fix Sonic, you know? Yeah, for sure. And I, I felt that whole thing was silly, but I did think that he looked better when they were done. I will admit, yeah. but I also I mean, thought he looks the, like the, the backlash character. was... He does look more like the character, but I thought the backlash was silly. Oftentimes when you go to a hybrid live action, the character is going to change looks and that didn't bother me, but he does look good. You know, I think yeah, he looks yeah. real good as he, with the upgrade. And I know that costs the studio a lot of money. So I definitely want to see that. Mm -hmm. But I was, I was also never like, I like Sonic, but he was never my thing. Mario is my thing. And, and I've never seen Mario done right ever, <laughs> except for in the video games. So right. I'm sort of used to uh, Mario not being done well. I mean, I, and I, when I was a, kid in the 80s i enjoyed the um you, you know i was born in the 80s right <laughs> mm -hmm. yeah. so i enjoyed like the original hand animated mario series i don't know if it was original or not but it was a animated mario series and it was fine but it was just not i just don't think mario lends itself to that so. yeah i mean i i expect we'll get some sort of cgi movie eventually now that i think so it has to happen yeah it, it has to and here's hoping they do it right eventually <laughs> maybe I mean, you already see in Mario characters and things like Wreck-It Ralph, where you got Bowser and Wreck-It Ralph and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So he's definitely a cultural icon. It's I, I think that there is hesitancy because of like the Mario movie and stuff. Oh, that thing's so awful. Um, <laughs> I've only seen just, that like one time. Oh, oh, I, 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 I haven't gotten through it honestly. It's so bad. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's not good. Okay, let's go ahead and do this. Okay, let's do it. Okay, everybody, welcome to episode 89 of Cinescope. I'm sitting here with TJ Draper. TJ, this is uh, the first time with you, with me, with my professional soundboard. And so I was going to say, something, the, something seems different. Yeah, this is different. It was funny because we did Movie Bite together for so long, and you always had the theme song play live, and it was nice to listen as we were getting ready and hyped up to go. Yeah, well, not always, but maybe by the time you had come along. Um, yeah, that maybe so. Because that's when I, I, at some point, I, I was using my church's soundboard for a while, and then I bought one so because I had to return the church's soundboard. So yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing well. Uh, as we were discussing before we played the intro music, I, I'm very busy, and I'm very fortunate uh, in that way, even despite everything that's going on in the world. And so I'm actually, just like everybody else, I need a distraction because on top of worrying about the world and the things that are going on, I am also still very busy, and so I'm a little stressed out, and so watching some comfort movies that I have grown up with is really fun. Yeah, it was funny because you actually reached out to me, and we're, you were like, uh, are you ready to talk about Star Trek now? <laughs> well, well, you know, I never miss a chance to try to, uh, try to bring people into the culture of Star Trek. Yes, yes. <laughs> so we are going to be talking about Star Trek here in just a moment. 
I want to do one quick plug, and then I'll talk about it more later. Okay. Uh, I just launched a Patreon page for Cinescope. And oh, very nice. There are, yeah, there are various benefits available to people who are interested in supporting the podcast financially. I'll go over those maybe a little bit later. Uh, but for now, just know that the link will be in the show notes, and I'll talk about it at the end of the show. I don't want to take your time on it now, because I want to get to talking about Star Trek. So let's go ahead and do this, TJ. Are you ready? I'm ready. I'm ready. Now, to remind me me and our, our listeners and you and everybody else, I guess, you, you have watched with me Star Trek 2 and then Star Trek 4. You, we skipped 3, but we kind of put it in there and talked about it a little in our Star Trek 4 mm-hmm. episode. And I think we're about to do the same thing. Yes, we are. Essentially. Um, so it's funny. I was realizing earlier that I haven't still seen the motion picture, the first one. It's okay. Uh, so I'm going to have to go back and watch that eventually. I know that's not like super well loved well watch the director's cut i like it but it's not the best that star trek has to offer and the director's cut makes it a far better film yeah and when we get to talking about star trek 5 in just a moment i think the appeal for me watching the motion picture is going to be a jerry goldsmith score (laughs) for sure it it is definitely the best thing about both star trek 1 and 5 Okay, let's go over some stats real quick, and then we'll start getting into things. So we're talking about Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country. This is the last of the Star Trek films uh, starring the full original cast from the original series. Mm -hmm. Uh, It released on December 6th of 1991 and was directed by Nicholas Meyer, who also directed and or wrote Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, uh, Star Trek IV, The Voyage Home, and now Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, and The Prince of Egypt. Yeah. The... Screenplay was written by Meyer and Denny Martin Flynn, uh, based on a story by Leonard Nimoy, Lawrence Connor, and Mark Rosenthal. The music is by Cliff Eidelman, and this this made me roll my eyes when I was first reading it, but after watching the film and hearing the score, I, I'm not rolling my eyes so hard anymore. But he, oh yeah, it's a he great score. He's well known for the, the, the scores for the films Christopher Columbus, The Discovery, Free Willy 3, The Rescue, uh-huh. the Lizzie uh-huh. McGuire movie, <laughs> oh. The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants, and He's Just Not Into You, He's Just Not That Into You, and Big Miracle. So I actually didn't know this, and I wish that I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, my opinion of him only went up while watching the film, so that was good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Good, good. <laughs> and the cast will go over. There was William Shatner, Leonard Nimoy, DeForest Kelly, James Doohan, George Takai, Walter Koenig. Michelle Nichols, Kim Cattrall, Christopher Plummer, David Warner, Iman, Brock Peters, and Rene Aubergenois, something like that. Aubergenois, yeah. Aubergenois, cool, I was close. Yeah. Thank you. So let's talk about our past experience with Star Trek just a little bit because we've already gone over it multiple times at this point, and then we'll talk yeah. about Star Trek V before we talk about Star Trek VI. So how about you start us okay. off, TJ? Well, I kind of grew up with Star Trek The Next Generation. I, let's see. I was born in 82, uh, so I was five when uh, Star, Trek, Star Trek The Next Generation started airing. Uh, it went straight to syndication, and, and that was a lot of fun. Like, I remember sitting and watching it with my dad or my siblings, and it would come on, you know, on, I think it was Thursday night at 9 or Friday night at 9. Anyway, I would, I would sit and watch it. And, and and it was it would air. They would also in syndication was the original series, and I can't remember if which one of those was first. But I would watch them back to back, an episode of the original series and an, a new episode of Star Trek: The Next Generation, and it was a lot of fun. And I remember being appropriately terrified, you know, when the big uh, planet killing device was about to devour Kirk when he was in the uh, USS Constellation. I want to say, oh, I'm supposed to be a Trekkie, goodness. Um, <laughs> but but you know, and before the Enterprise was having trouble getting a lock on him and beaming him back, and I remember I was shaking in my. That's one of the vivid memories that I have of of watching Star Trek. 
And really, um, I have bits and pieces of memories of the movies, but the movies have come more in my adulthood. And I realize now, of course, the original series movies, Star Trek's one through six, are some of the best that the original series has to offer. Well, not, not that there aren't good episodes in the original series, but the, the movies are definitely a step up. When, when you get to Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, which is still the best Star Trek movie that's ever been made. So that's, you know, that's kind of my history with Star Trek. Yeah, we've gone over my Star Trek experience before as well, uh, but a, a sort of quick rundown. My first exposure to the series was through the 2009 reboot and its subsequent sequels. I'm, I'm so sorry. Yeah, <laughs> I really like those. Maybe we'll talk about those next, TJ. <laughs> we'll see. They're, they're fine, and especially the last one was really good, but yeah, uh, yeah. they're barely Star Trek. Yeah, I joked with you recently. Uh, when you approached me about talking <laughs> more Star Trek, I said, oh, yes, the best one, the 2009 film. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> Anyways, uh, I've seen a few episodes of the original series, and I've obviously been going through these original films with TJ on the podcast and haven't seen Motion Picture yet. I'll go back and watch that. Uh, but I've liked what I've seen of the original series, and Star Trek is definitely one of those properties I want to explore more of. But I also recently looked up how many episodes are there in Star Trek so far, and the answer uh, is lot. almost eight hundred. So <laughs> I knew it was up there in a the seven. So yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. It, it's nearly eight hundred. So maybe, maybe someday we'll see. I will allow you to skip the animated series because okay. honestly, I've not watched that either. <laughs> but okay. other than that, noted. <laughs> <laughs> well. We have been talking about the even-numbered films more in-depth than the other films in uh, on the podcast, and so we're skipping over Star Trek V as far as diving in deep, but we both watched it in preparation yeah, for this episode, so how about we talk just a little bit about our thoughts on that film? Yeah. Well, so the uh, it has been considered for many, many, many films that the even-numbered Star Trek films are the good ones. Not that Star Trek 3 or 5 was bad. Particularly 3 was fine. 5 was troubled. And then, you know, Generations, Star Trek 7, it's fine. But, you know, then you've got Star Trek 8, First Contact. At that point, they stopped numbering them, but First Contact is a fantastic film. So the even-numbered films are considered like the good Star Trek films, generally speaking. But I, I actually, you know, speaking of five, I, I do actually like it a lot. I just don't like the primary story. And that's really the biggest problem with that film is the overarching story. Because that, Star Trek V has great witty dialogue, great bits and pieces. There's some really nice set pieces in that film. I love everything that happens around the campfire, both at the beginning and at the end. Just mm -hmm. wonderful banter between our three kind of primary characters. Uh, you know, it's, you know, Spock, uh, Spock and McCoy. I'm sorry, Doctor. Were we having fun? You know, it's just <laughs> wonderful. Wonderful. And it's, it, it's, it's Spock and Kirk and McCoy, like, in their, like, element. All the stuff in the brig is great. You know, Jim, if you want to punish him, why don't you throw him in the brig? <laughs> you know, it's just wonderful. And and you have also the undercurrent of of the whole Spock Cybok relationship, the the whole half brother thing. Mm -hmm. uh, and there's some wonder, you know, you are under arrest for 17 violations of neutral zone treat. You know, it, Spock, I didn't know you developed a sense of humor. There's some great moments in the film, and, and I would even say a lot of the film brings us back more in tone to the original series, which is interesting. And then you have this terrible story that's overarching it, and it, it's. It's just, it's hard to forgive. Like, are we really supposed to believe that the entire crew of the Enterprise, who's been with Captain Kirk for a long time, fell for the nonsense of a con man? Like, I just, I don't get it. I don't get it. And, and ultimately, the crew loses, Like, right? Like, they lose. Mm -hmm. And Cybok takes them to this planet, and they escape from the alien masquerading as God by the skin of their teeth. 
Right. <laughs> I just, oh, it's just terrible. A terrible story. <laughs> my experience, it was my first time watching. I honestly thought it was, it was fine. But that's from the perspective of someone who still isn't very entrenched in the Star Trek fandom. And it yeah. isn't, the, the, my biggest takeaway was it wasn't memorable, except for some bad special effects, I guess. Oh, yes. The, the visual effects. Do you know, did you read anything about what happened with the visual effects? In no, this film? I didn't actually. So ILM has done, uh, up until Star Trek V, had done all of the effects for all the Star Trek films, the, mm -hmm. the, the visual effects. That was their thing. Uh, but because of Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade and Ghostbusters 2, they couldn't do it on the schedule that Paramount wanted. And you start reading then, so Ralph Winter then said, well, we're going to have to find somebody else to get it done on the schedule. And so they went and they, you know, they found this uh, little shop in, in uh, Brooklyn, uh, or it was somewhere in New York City. And, it, you know, you just start reading about the things that went on. It's just pure amateur hour. <laughs> and, and, you know, especially after the amazing work that the ILM did for Star Trek's 2, 3, and 4 on shoestring effects budgets. And just, they look incredible. They look like a million bucks. And, uh, yeah, this was just bad, 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 bad. <laughs> it was not acceptable, even at the time. Shatner says that it was even worse than what we saw and that the editor of the film, he praises the editor profusely. He was the director of Star Trek V. <laughs> right. He says he, that, that this editor is amazing. He pulled a rabbit out of his hat, you know. <laughs> and in later years, Shatner has offered to uh, pay out of his own pocket to redo the visual effects uh, to make the, that part of the film at least watchable. And Paramount has just completely refused. Huh. So, <laughs> yeah. That's, that's interesting uh, that he would yeah. consider <laughs> tossing out his own money for that. That that'd be worthwhile for sure. Well, it's his baby. It's it's the only Star Trek film that he directed. Yeah. So I didn't dislike my time watching it. It also wasn't great though, especially compared to like Wrath of Khan and Voyage Home. Um, oh yeah. What what I think I'm noticing is that the even numbered Star Trek films, at least to this point, tried new things, <laughs> and the odd number ones are just kind of like. I don't want to call them safe because that's not necessarily the, the fact, but I've, what I've liked about uh, two, four and six now is that they all are accomplishing something very different and they're all different types, types of Star Trek stories. You know, you, you're onto something there and I've never thought about it that way because Star Trek two basically went into new territory. They hired mm -hmm. Nick Meyer who had never even watched a single episode of Star Trek. And then he of course sat down and watched Star Trek before he directed the film, but he brought in a very different perspective and he did a lot of different things. And that worked really well. And then Star Trek Three is a much more, you know, Nimoy, uh, they were worried because he'd never directed a film before. And so they're like, okay, you know, we're going to put some guardrails on you. And it was a little more workmanlike. Mm -hmm. And then Star Trek Four, they basically told Nimoy, do what you want. And he's like, cool, we're going, we're going back in time. Yeah, we're going back in time and saving the whales. <laughs> yeah, Star Trek Five, I think, is a retread of, you could very easily see the plot of this episode being something the original series would have done mm -hmm. uh, as, as an episode, a one-hour episode instead of a two-hour film. And so it was kind of a retread. And then, like you say, Star Trek Six, very new territory for Star Trek Explored. I'm not, not that, you know, we'll get into Star Trek Six, but, it, it, you know, exploring themes is not new to Star Trek, but the way it went about it is very new. For yeah. Star Trek. So, yeah, wonderful. I, I, I do want to say, I do want to give praise. So, Jerry Goldsmith scored uh, Star Trek The Motion Picture. Wonderful score mm -hmm. on a little bit more lackluster film. It was brought in again to score this film, which, again, is a lackluster film, but an amazing score. Like, I listen to the score all the time, and he did some, you know, some wonderful new things. He brought back some themes, but he also introduced some new themes and some new instruments. And 
just a wonderful score. Yeah, the score really stood out to me while I was watching. And so I'm looking forward to exploring that more as well. Yeah. And he, since you haven't seen the motion picture, the two big themes that he brought back, uh, of course, was the main theme that opened mm-hmm. the film. And then the uh, the Klingon theme, you know, da, 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 da. so that it's a wonderful theme, but he, he made it so much more lively here because Star Trek The Motion Picture was a more muted film and this is a more lively film. And he brought in that crying ram's horn and the more more uh, drumming like instrumentation in the background, and it's it's I really I really like it. Yeah, I think I have the the motion picture score on vinyl, possibly. Oh wow! So goodness. Yeah, I'll have to see if I can pull it out. Maybe. But anyways, that's our thoughts on Star Trek Five. Let's go ahead and go into Star Trek Six. So, what about the story stands out to you here? Well, so the story, you know, it's it's clearly allegorical. It's clearly a film that deals with racism, xenophobia, dealing with other cultures, you know, peace and and when you've lived at odds with some some culture for so long and you're used to thinking of them as the enemy, <laughs> you know, does this sound familiar? Then <laughs> then you then you you become comfortable in that. And this film represents learning to think outside of that box. And and you take a character like Kirk and a character like McCoy, even, who has his own prejudices and, and you know, Chekhov has his prejudices and Spock in his way has his prejudices. And you take these older characters who we've, who have been our heroes for so long and you see them wrestling with this and you're like, it's okay to wrestle with this. It's okay to recognize, you know what? My journey's not complete. I need to rethink how I feel about this race and this culture. Um, and, and it's something that, not, that no other TOS film has done before, or, TOS, or Star Trek in general, at least up to this point with the original series. You know, the next generation had started to deal with stuff like that, but it's, a, it's sort of its own thing. And this is being done on the big screen in a film with, with heroes that we've been with for so long. And I, that's what this film represents to me is, is, you know, (laughs) Nick Meyer is not a subtle director by any stretch of the imagination. And yet somehow in this film, it all just works. And it works so well. I like how from the very start of the film, you know, that it's going to be really different. It starts more ominously first off from the overture that you hear from Eidelman's score. But even when we start getting into the, the actual movie, you have Sulu in charge of his own ship. He's separate from the mm-hmm. rest of the crew. Yep. And so automatically it's like, okay, what's going on? I don't, I don't know what to think of this because there's no Kirk, there's no Spock. It's just Sulu and his crew separate from the people we're all familiar with. And so the way the film goes from there and then brings Sulu back later is really different. And I like that. You also understand the sort of gravity of the dispute between the Federation and the Klingons even for somebody like me who doesn't have the history of their conflict in the series over the years. And so uh, you really felt Kirk's hatred for the Klingons here and understood why it was so much for Spock to have volunteered Kirk to help with these negotiations. Well, and it's done in such a way that we, even though you are somewhat repulsed, you know, when Kirk says, let them die, you know, you're somewhat repulsed, but you're also like, well, these, these people, and, and, you know, you have to put yourself in Kirk's mindset to say this, but these people, I'm using quotes, mm-hmm. they killed, you know, a member of this race killed Kirk's son in Star Trek Three, mm-hmm. And so he's had, oh, how many years has it been since Star Trek III? Uh, 10, 15 years or whatever it is uh, in, the, in, the, in the universe to, to become bitter about this. And, and so you have that background where the Klingons have been the enemies of the Federation, but then it, it's become personal. And it's mm-hmm. become real to Kirk. And so it's done in a very sympathetic way and in a way that kind of gets to you and makes you realize, oh, 
if if Kirk as as my hero as as the hero of our story can come to where he comes by the end of the film, we can too. Absolutely. And then just the 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 arch of the story here, we talked about how 2, 4 and 6 are all different kind of Star Trek films. We talked about how Wrath of Khan is almost like a submarine movie where the the action is very slow-paced and deliberate. And then you have yeah. uh 4 which was a time travel movie. So that's completely out of left field. And now here we have a mystery and I love the mystery, yes. even from like the moments where it was first getting started after the, the Klingons have left back to their ship from the dinner and the first torpedo gets fired from the enterprise and Oh, what's, what's happening? Who fired this torpedo? And you see the panic happening in Kirk's eyes because this is everything falling apart in front of him. And he's going to be held responsible. Yeah, he's going to be held responsible. And you know, because of the way he's been acting, he can, you can see it. He feels it. He knows that it's not beyond a reasonable, you know, a reasonable conclusion that he might have somehow done this. Right. Absolutely. You know? So there's that aspect, too. And then you see the mysterious figures showing up on the Klingon ship to assassinate the chancellor. And so th there's that setup right there. And then the whole rest of the film is like a detective story where they're following clues and discovering secrets. And I loved that. That was so cool. And the cinematography in this film is so great. You've got that scene where, you know, you're, it's during the trial, the, the, the show trial, and uh, you, you cut from the trial to the bridge of the Enterprise, and it's kind of focused on Chekhov, but then they talk about the boots, right? They were wearing, they appeared to be wearing magnetic boots. And, and then the, the rack focus shifts from, from Chekhov to Spock, and you kind of see him perk up and he goes, gravity boots, you know, and you can see the wheels turning as he's as he's figuring out this mystery, like mm -hmm. he's putting the pieces together, you know. Did you have anything else to say about the story before we got to the characters? Yeah, I mean, I, th I think that the story, um, it, it really obviously drives this film in such a way like you get to the end and you see Kirk standing there with the new chancellor, the, the former chancellor's daughter, Azetbur. And he can barely look her in the eyes as he says, some people can be frightened of change. I was, you know, and, and it's such a wonderful story that leads you to this wonderful conclusion for a send off for this cast. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's so good. It's, it's, that's what I have to say about this story is that it is the best possible way they could. It is my second favorite Star Trek film and it is the best possible way they could have sent this, this crew off. Yeah. I have a lot of feelings about the ending uh, that I'll get to later, but let's talk about Kirk. So we already talked about this a little bit. His resentment at having to fulfill this assignment is really clear. Uh, and yeah. he's struggling to overcome his biases and, he's, and his anger towards Klingons in contrast with his duties as a member of Starfleet and as a captain of a ship because of the death of his son. And then the death of the Chancellor in the midst of these negotiations, he, he has a small speech about this to Spock in the film. It reveals to himself just how far his anger reaches because he'd never even considered for a moment that the chancellor was genuine uh, yeah. in his want yeah. for peace. No, it's so, that scene in, the, in Spock's quarters is, is so moving. Yes. And I, you know, I was even reading on uh, Wikipedia about how they intentionally made the chancellor, uh, the Klingon chancellor look more human. He was designed to look like Abe Lincoln because they wanted to humanize that character and make us feel that sort of sympathy for him, despite him yeah. being a Klingon and despite Kirk being so against these negotiations happening in the first place. 
Yeah, and that's really where we, just as a technical note, started seeing more variation in the Klingons, just like we see in humans. You know, not all Klingons have the exact same forehead ridges, right? And so you start <laughs> seeing more variation, like some have more, some have less. And, and throughout the rest of Star Trek now, you see how the different Klingons from different provinces, from different sects look different. And I thought that was a wonderful touch as well, and, and definitely served the story. And I, I know Christopher Plummer, he was, you know, he's a classically trained Shakespearean actor, which, you know, Nicholas Meyer loved and really played into, obviously. Um, mm-hmm. But but he he also was like, I want as little makeup as possible because I want the, my humanity to come out. And so that's kind of where that, that played in as well. And it, and it did serve the story very well. It did. And then you have Kirk's choice to surrender rather than fight his way out after the, the assassination happened. And I just want to point out that that's the first time in this film that Kirk has actually done something heroic, which is different for Kirk, right? Because we're, we're used to thinking of Kirk as always a hero. And mm-hmm. up until this point, he was doing it grudgingly. And something changed in that moment when, when, they, when somebody fired on the Chancellor's ship and he's like, we have to do whatever we can to be the heroes here, whether we want mm-hmm. to or not. Yeah, I really admired that. And it, it surprised me at first, not because I didn't think Kirk was capable of something like that, but to, to see the depths to which he genuinely believes that something may have been his fault and the way he accepts that responsibility as captain and tries to avoid further bloodshed, whether it's of his crew or of the Klingon crew, it, yeah. it, was, it, was, it really spoke to the emotion, emotional turmoil he was going through at that moment. Yeah, and it speaks to the good qualities of a leader, despite the fact that he has flaws, which we have seen thus far in the film. Like he, has the qual- he still has those hero qualities and those qualities of a leader that, that have on- honestly inspired me as, you know, and a generation of people who grew up with Captain Kirk and then Picard later. Like you see that here. It's still on display. It's still there despite the bitterness that has grown in him, this, this, this quality that, that has always inspired us to be better and to be more like Kirk. That's still there. What else about Kirk? Well, you know, we've talked mostly just about Kirk himself, but there's also, you know, Kirk's relationship with Spock, um, mm-hmm. where you see throughout the beginning of this film how the decisions Spock makes, which which are good decisions and the right decisions, and yet he did it sort of in arrogance and, and, and over in his own corner and by himself, and he didn't consult with his captain, uh, although technically Spock is a captain himself, but in terms mm-hmm. of rank, but like, you know what I mean? He didn't consult with his friends and he volunteered, like it was, it was hubris, it really was, mm-hmm. and he didn't consider the effect that he was having on Kirk. So you see this sort of broken relationship of these two friends, you know, who... Uh, one sacrificed himself for the other, and then the other sacrificed himself for him, and and so they're they're these blood friends, and yet you know here in the in these moments in the beginning, the first half of the film, they're at odds. You know, you have that that wonderfully tense scene where Kirk invites the Klingons over for dinner, and you know you see the the look on his face when he accepts, and he's like, well, um, uh, we'll make arrangements to have you beamed aboard, and then he walks by Spock, and you know he says, I hope you're happy. You know, it's, it's just these this wonderful tension uh, I, I, wonderful in terms of the storytelling <laughs> tension between these two old friends and kirk has to work through that and how his prejudice leads him to be bitter even with his his good friend and then there's that speech we mentioned earlier where spock is sort of sulking in his quarters and he says oh i, I like it to be dark please don't turn the lights on and he yeah. apologizes to kirk for all of this happening and kirk then stands up and says no this is you did the right thing, and this is something that I have had to overcome in myself, and now here we are. I really like that. Yeah, for sure. You know, and, and I love the realization that Kirk comes to. This is the scene where he's um, in the, in the uh, bunk with McCoy, mm-hmm. and, and he's, he's sitting there going, I, you know, <laughs> I didn't realize how prejudiced I was, but you know what? We're nothing. The peace conference is still on. 
and we've got to do something. You know, that's, that's essentially what he comes to. Mm-hmm. And it's just a wonderful arc for Kirk in this film. Yeah, his escape from prison becomes more about protecting from further assassination attempts rather than for yeah. his own benefit to get out of prison for him. Yeah, well, and you also, even though Kirk and Spock have been at odds, you, you have that, that moment where, um, you know, Spock says to uh, Valeris or, or Uhura, I can't remember which one, he's, or maybe both of them, I don't remember, but he says, if I know, or no, it was Uhura and Scotty, he says, if I know the captain... He is deep into planning his escape. You know, cut to, of course, Kirk is being beaten up, which is right. wonderful. But but also, it's true, right? It, it's, he, he knows his captain. He knows what's going on. He's, he's going to do whatever it takes to get to him. Mm-hmm. Now, we've talked about Spock's journey throughout these films as well, and across the original series, too. He has reached the point where he has acknowledged that logic isn't the end-all, be-all that Vulcans and himself, from the start, believed it to be. Uh, his journey across the series and across the films has been to sort of move past his Vulcan side and embracing more of his human side, which means embracing, responding more emotionally to situations and not always taking the strictly logical approach. And he even talks with Valeris about that. Who Valeris is built up to sort of be his protege from the start and is going to take over from him when he moves on and retires and he's talking to her you know logic isn't necessarily the answer always he's trying to pass on these very human principles to other vulcans and you see uh so in star trek 2 speaking you know talking about the journey of spock you see that spock is very comfortable with himself but he's still very logical he doesn't display emotion but he's very comfortable with himself he knows who he is and he's you know he knows that he's good friends with kirk and all these things and and then of course he he passes on and so that's the end of Spock's journey, or is it? And so when Spock is resurrected, then you have all of Star Trek Four, where he's relearning how to be Spock and who he is. And some of those include changes, you know, of, of who he is and his character. And, and you, you see that. This is one of the good things about Star Trek Five. You see that kind of played out in Star Trek Five, where he's dealing with Cybok, his half-brother. And then by the end of the film, I think he's, uh, and some of this is headcanon, but I feel like he's deeply affected when Kirk says to him at the end of that film, you know, I lost a brother once, but I was lucky I got him back. Mm-hmm. And then Spock, you know, I think this this informs who Spock is becoming now in Star Trek Six, where he's he's embracing more than he ever has, as you said, his human half, and 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 learning that this pure logic, pure logic is what. And and this is again, this is something you have to draw from the movie. It's not explicitly stated, but pure logic is the reasoning that Valeris uses, right? And right. and that's kind of almost explicitly stated when Spock is talking with Valeris in his quarters. So, you know, his logic. You're, you're, you're talking about logic, but that's just the beginning. You know, you got to move beyond that. And here she is operating on logic, and, and, and where that can lead can, is not always good. And Valeris, I don't necessarily have a lot to say about her, but Valeris and Chang, they represent this, this faction of people who are scared of change. And even though avoiding and eliminating conflict by going through these negotiations is a good thing, it eliminates the comfort, quote, comfort, of things the way they've always been. Yeah, as as Kirk said, he had grown used to hating them. And I, I right. think Valeris in her way was the same way. Like she had grown used to, and, and in her mind, you know, she's thinking, well, they conspired with us. How trustworthy can they be? We can't trust these people. Mm-hmm. And, and, and this film really uses to great effect our knowledge thus far of Vulcans and Vulcans and what they become later when we talk about Star Trek Enterprise and stuff. We don't know all that yet. And so uh, it really becomes this weapon that Nicholas Meyer uses against us because there's no way in the world the first time you watch this film that you think the traitor can be Valeris. And yet when you get there, you're like, how did I not see this? Uh-huh. 
there, there was one specific moment. I'm trying to remember if I can pin it down, but there was one like look that she gives to the camera where it's like, oh, it's her. Yeah. Before the actual reveal comes. And it's like a drop in your stomach. Like, oh no, it's the Vulcan. It's the one that Spock has put his trust in. Yeah. And, and, and again, Nick Meyer did such a good job of making us love her. Like it, th- th- there's this wonderful scene that happens the first time we're on the bridge of the enterprise and Kirk and McCoy walk in and Spock walks in and, uh, Valeris is captain on the bridge, you know? And, uh, and then, um, Valeris, it is good to see you again. Da, da, da. And, and then he's Spock says to Kirk very proudly, the Lieutenant was the first Vulcan to graduate at the top of her class at the Academy. You know, and then he says, you must be very proud. And she's like, I don't believe so, sir. <laughs> and McCoy's like, yep, she's a Vulcan. <laughs> yeah, and there's other funny moments like that, too, where uh, when Kirk tells her to take them into space a certain way, or like, I don't remember, what is it, turn on the thrusters? Yeah, well, it's uh, one quarter impulse power. And you're yeah, not supposed yeah, to use thrusters it, inside space dock. Right, and she she quotes that regulation and Everybody just sort of shares a look around the room like, oh, she clearly hasn't been around Captain Kirk before. <laughs> yeah, 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 for sure. And so Nick Meyer does all this stuff to make us love this character. It turns out that's just that's just winding the bat back so he can take a swing at us with it. Uh-huh. <laughs> so, yeah, really, really wonderful storytelling. And then Chang is Christopher Plummer. And Christopher Plummer is always fun to watch in a role. And I'd never seen him in mm. a role like this before where he's just like mm-hmm. so gleefully evil and he's you can kind of tell or at least guess from the beginning that he's not quote a good guy <laughs> i mean he's got a metal <laughs> eye patch for crying out loud <laughs> yeah yeah yeah. but he's still just like this fun character and you sort of revel a little bit in his evil when he's laughing around quoting shakespeare i really liked him no i don't think you were ever supposed to think he was a good guy but no, you know no. nick meyer as i said he, he's not subtle <laughs> but but you know it, it is that that you, you kind of forgive it because this is christopher Plummer chewing the scenery and it's just amazing it is and then you have gorkhan 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 yeah who is the chancellor and we have reason to doubt his motivations from the start because he's klingon and we know kirk's feelings on the matter and we know the history of the animosity of his people but then we Come to discover when he's assassinated, he truly does represent the, quote, undiscovered country and the possibility of growth in the future. And what I admired was that when his daughter took on the role of chancellor after he passed, she was willing to continue the pursuits of her father, even in his death. Like she didn't all of a sudden change her mind or try and steer away from peace because her father was killed. Yeah, he's a he's a really good character. And and you're right, the first time you watch the film, which is so hard for me to put myself in that mindset, but you don't know whether to trust him or not. Right. And he does represent some of the best that this film has to offer in terms of the goodness of, of character. Mm-hmm. And we don't get to see much of him, but what we do see of him is played wonderfully by David Warner, who, fun fact, was also in the previous film as yeah. uh, Talbot. Right, I noticed that. Yeah, So, uh, but, but very different look here, so you can kind of get away with it. And he's such a wonderful actor. He, he also played uh, a, a bad guy in uh, Star Trek The Next Generation. A wonderful episode of Star Trek The Next Generation. Two of them, in fact. It was a two-parter. But yeah, yeah really, really wonderfully brought to life by David Warner. Any other characters to talk about? Oh, let's see. Well, um, I think McCoy is an interesting character. And in I mean, as, as the film franchise has progressed, he's become... Even though, like, in real life, D. Kelly uh, was a very, uh, you see him in interviews, and he's just a wonderful Southern gentleman, always very polite and nice, and 
not a mean bone in his body, and yet when he's playing McCoy, he's such an irascible, cranky character, and he becomes more and more so, and you see this at the beginning of the film, right, where he's like, uh, where Admiral Cartwright's like, I don't know whether to congratulate you or not, Jim, and McCoy's like, I wouldn't, you know, and it's just, he's so wonderfully irascible, and, and he's he's kind of struggling with his own, uh, you know, thoughts and feelings on, on this matter, and uh, as he says to Spock in this wonderful line at the end of the film, well, they don't arrest people for having feelings. <laughs> So it's, but you see too the growth of him as a character through this as well. He's more, I think, because his friend Kirk was hurt so badly and his son was killed by the Klingons. He's basically just on Kirk's side, but he's on this journey with Kirk as well. And I don't know. I always like McCoy. Yeah, I like McCoy as well. And the scene that stood out for me in this movie was the trial. Yeah, when he was being accused of being negligent and not fit to save. The Chancellor, even though he was putting in, at least to our eyes, he was putting in so much effort into saving him, they raised so much doubt by saying, well, we had a lot to drink that night. What capability did you have to save this man when you were so far gone? Or, you know, you're getting old, your hands are shaky, are they always shaky? And so they, they were planning so much doubt for the, the judge, but also for bones himself in himself and you can definitely see he's unnerved at the beginning of the trial he's he's basically he knows it's a show trial and he's playing along right and mm-hmm. but then when chang is telling him may i ask do your hands shake and you can see just how unnerved he is that not just unnerved it's it's more like it's a it's an assault upon his dignity that he wasn't doing everything he could to save a patient and right and it's just you know it's a wonderful performance as always by deforest kelly uh as bones if that's all we have to say about characters, let's talk about the music a little bit. Sure. I wanted to start off. I, I have clips on my soundboard, like I'm trying to do more often. The very first thing to stand out for me, uh, as it probably should for most people, is the opening credits music. <laughs> What's different about it, though, is it's not what you would expect from a typical Star Trek opening. It's not the fanfare. It's not music that you're familiar with. It's percussive. It builds. It builds, and it's dark, and it's ominous. So here's a little bit of that. So that's the start of it. And that's the track called The Overture in the in the the score that I have here in iTunes. Right. And you know, Star Trek for me, especially looking at the Kelvin verse, just because that's where a lot of my initial experience comes from, Star Trek has always been like this optimistic view of the future. And I picture the the happy kind of sounds, you know, the, that opening fanfare from the original series, bum, 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 bum. Yes. That's not this at all. <laughs> it's, it's dark. It's foreboding. You know that something's about to go down. And that fanfare, to be fair to Cliff Eidelman, it does make its way into the score at different points, you know. It does, but, uh, right. Especially when the Enterprise is doing something glorious or at the end of the film when, the, when, when it's clearly the last scene and, you know, Kirk is quoting Peter Pan. Like, you get that in there. But it definitely it has this much darker feel. It's more in keeping with the tone that Nicholas Meyer set for this film. And the overture is one of my favorite tracks on the soundtrack. I don't know what else you have on that soundboard, but one of the great tracks uh, that's still, it's very kind of quiet and moody, but it's called Surrender for Peace. And it's the scene, and I, I know the soundtrack so well that I can kind of 
visualize and hear the dialogue as it's playing, but like it's the part where Kirk surrenders, right? He, we surrender. And then it kind of plays out as he then boards the ship and is walking through the corridors. And it's a wonderful, moody, low key, quiet kind of piece that is just ominous and, and building and, and you know, something bad is going down. I really liked that moment. I also liked parts of escape from Ruripente. Yes. That's really, there's some really, really beautiful stuff in that one. I've got a, a track from that as well. That part is while they're obviously they're escaping and they're walking through the landscape and you just have these wide shots. It's really beautiful. Yeah. Oh, I, I can see it in my head. Yeah. And, and, and it's a little something about those scenes. So they weren't sure they were going to get those scenes. This is second unit stuff in Alaska. And um, it really adds to because they have these huge sweeping helicopter scenes. It really adds to the big feel of the film that they weren't sure they were going to get them because they were having, it was so cold. They're having trouble with the, the film and the, the cameras like locking up and destroying the film reels and all this stuff. So we're lucky that's in the, sh- in the movie and the movie is much better for it too. Yeah, I would agree. Now mentioning the original Star Trek fanfare that was composed, who, who composed it for the original series? I'm trying uh, to remember. A- Alexander, Alexander Courage. Okay. Gotcha. So we, we have moments of that theme that stand out to me as well. Uh, the first time that happens is as they're first departing on the adventure for this negotiation. I have a little snippet of that as well. I'm going to leave it playing, but I'm going to bring it down a little bit so I can talk over it. Something I think that Idleman did really well, that I think that Giacchino also did really well, I don't know if you agree with me here, is taking that original material from the original series and then combining it with his own new stuff. And so you have this really beautiful lyrical theme here that Idleman has composed interspersed with bits of the original theme. And I love when composers do that. Giacchino, I think, does that to great effect in the... 09 film as well. I think all the scores for Star Trek do that to some extent. I think Goldsmith was a master at it. Uh, James Horner did it a few times and it was really well done. But yeah, he uses it to great effect here. It's a wonderful, beautiful score that does incorporate some of those original elements. I don't think Giacchino's is good at it, but he does it as well. <laughs> and um, yeah, it, it, it's, it's really well done, especially in that scene that you're talking about where the Enterprise is uh, going too fast out of space dock because Kirk gave the the order to use impulse power when you're supposed to use thrusters. And it, yeah, it was, it's a wonderful bit of, of, of scoring there. And I have one more clip, which is similar and it comes at the end of the film. And I really wanted to highlight this moment because it was really impressive to me, how it made me feel such nostalgia for characters that I don't have a lot of history with, <laughs> you know, um, it's, yeah, they're standing at the bridge of the enterprise together one last time, you know, it's the last time there's echoes of the main theme and fanfare from the original series as Shatner is giving that final voiceover. And then there's music that plays as the signatures from the original cast members appear before the official credits. It's just a really mm-hmm. special moment that 
made me it made me like teary eyed and it didn't make sense for me to get teary eyed. I haven't been watching Star Trek since I was a kid. It made me emotional despite my lack of history with the characters. And so it was a really great highlight of how music can be used to enhance a mood and enhance a feeling. It can, but I think there's also something, even even if you haven't spent a lot of time with these characters and knowing kind of this is the last time. And it really right. was, it was the last time they stood on that, on that bridge together. It, it was. And it's a shame that Sulu wasn't there. Too. I mean, they had that really nice goodbye with Sulu, but it just would have like, you yeah. know, to have him there in the picture with everybody else. Yeah, 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 for sure. I'll go ahead and play that moment, and then if you have anything else, it'll be your turn. Oh, that's so good. Did you have any other musical moments that stand out to you? The biggest one is um, the big finale track of the, um, let me see if I can find the track name here. Um, yeah, it's a, it's, it's a three-part track, at least in the soundtrack I have. There's been different editions of this soundtrack. Mine is the expanded whatever. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the battle for peace slash the final chance for peace slash the final count. So it's, it's really the battle for peace. And it's a wonderful tension-filled scoring it's it's just it's a really good uh, it's an eight minute and sixteen second long piece and it's it's wonderful and it encompasses it starts basically with the countdown where Spock is counting down as they warp into the planet and and it it goes through the entire battle with uh, Chang and the cloaked bird of prey and it ends kind of with Kirk beaming down and the crew beaming down and saving the day and th- and there's some of the good tracks too Mind Meld is really good Dining on Ashes that scene with uh, where where Kirk says Dining on Ashes Spock you know. Yeah, so it's a, it's a wonderful, wonderful score. It's a different score for Star Trek, and it's the most unique of the Star Trek scores, I would say, but it's a wonderful score. Yeah, and like I said, it gave me a new level of respect for the composer from Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants. <laughs> Goodness sake, seeing the other stuff he's done, I, I didn't even know that. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm going to enjoy listening to that score as well. Now, going into our final discussion topic, we have the impact of the film whether it's takeaways or themes that we want to discuss. Uh, and I'll, I'll go ahead and start off. The, the greater theme, I think, is the, the capacity for change, the possibility of new allies from old enemies because circumstances and people are capable of changing, deciding to put trust in people because you know that they are capable of that change, not sitting so firmly in your biases and in your prejudices when People are on the other end of it, reaching out a hand to ask for help or to ask for reconciliation or negotiation. That's one of the biggest takeaways for me from this movie is how people are capable of change. And you see that in the Klingons who are asking for help. You see that in Kirk who overcomes his anger towards the Klingons over the death of his son uh, by the end of the film and in a couple other characters as well. Yeah, I don't I don't have a lot to add to that. I mean, cuz it's it's a film that I feel like is going to be relevant for some time to come. Like I mean, in some way we hope that uh as Star Trek posits that humanity is is kind of growing out of a phase, right? Where mm-hmm. as we've come along and but at the same time and also uh, as a Christian, which I I bring up from time to time, like we do know that that sin is a part of of who we are. And so it's a wonderful film to remind us that 
in 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 this way where we look at other human beings sometimes and we we somehow see them as less than human and I think that theme is just so relevant to say, no, they're human too. Or in the case of Star Trek, they're fellow beings, like they're fellow sentient beings who, right. but, but, but it's the same concept, right? They're, they're beings who have feelings, who, who, who read Shakespeare like you do, you know, and, and there's this wonderful scene, uh, wonderful, again, wonderful is the wrong word. I'm, I'm speaking story-wise, it's a wonderful scene. Mm-hmm. Uh, so Brock Peters uh, plays Admiral Cartwright, who we saw in Star Trek Four. He's kind of a... You know, he didn't have a lot to do in Star Trek Four, but he's kind of a known figure, and he's kind of a, you know, we think of these wonderful people in Starfleet, these admirals who are good and upright people, and he's he's giving this speech at the table at the meeting, you know, the big secret meeting where they're sending Kirk off to meet up with Cronus One, and uh, he says, uh, you know, he he spews all this stuff, and um, it, it's the scene where he calls Klingons the alien trash of the galaxy, and you know, I was uh, I was watching an interview where Nick Meyer said that Brock Peters. He loved the scene. He recognized the importance of it. And yet, because of who Brock Peters is and what he, the era he grew up in, he had a hard time saying those lines. And then hearing that interview just made me so sad for some of the racist stuff that's happened in the past in this country and, in, and around the world. And, you know, it, I think that, that the message that this film has for us is still so poignant. And I'm, I'm proud of how far we've come, but there's still road ahead of us, I guess is right. what I'm saying. Yeah, I was reading about that moment with uh, Brock Peters as well. And what I read was that he couldn't even do like the whole speech in one take because it was so like difficult for him. Right. Which, I mean, yeah, I think that says enough on its own, honestly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Brock Peters also uh, known for playing the role of Tom Robinson in uh, To Kill a Mockingbird. Um, oh, yes. Which yes. is a great film. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, and I, I'm looking, making sure, yeah, he, he passed in 2005. So we lost a wonderful actor there. Another takeaway is the trust that you can place in friends. You have Spock who sort of trusts in Kirk's ability to overcome his prejudices to aid in negotiations with the Klingons, which is why he vouches for him despite Kirk's disdain for them. You have Sulu who doesn't hesitate to help Kirk and the Enterprise in stopping further assassination attempts despite the, the uh, potential legal ramifications because of their history as crewmates. Like, even though yeah. Kirk and Spock and crew are in trouble because of what went down at the negotiations with the Chancellor, he says, oh, you know, to hell with that. I'm going to aid these guys. I'm going to help these guys out and help them figure things out. Yeah. You have hearing problems, mister. <laughs> that yeah. was good. Absolutely. I, I, I really, yeah, I agree with that, all that. And then the way you see them all standing together at the end of the film, these are people who've gone on a journey together. And that sort of leads me into sort of my last point, which is just the metaphor of the title as it applies to the cast of the film. They'd been filming Star Trek together at this point for like 25 years, right? 67 Mm -hmm. was when the first, uh, the the original series premiered. And this is 91. They were getting old. Yeah. They'd been doing this together for a long time. And it was largely time for them to move on for some to retirement. DeForest Kelly was 71 years old at the time. Yeah. Others were moving on to just a new part of their career sans Star Trek. Who knew what life outside of Star Trek would bring them? But that's okay. It's the undiscovered country. It's the future. And it's the next step in life for them. And I I really liked how that summed everything up together. Leonard Nimoy talks about how this film, there were were so many moments, at least for him while he was filming it, while they were writing the story and all these things, and he was the executive producer. And so there were moments where reality and story kind of blended together for him. And he talks about how when he did the scene in the quarters uh, with Kirk, and he, he asked Kirk, is it possible that we've grown so old and inflexible that we've outlived our usefulness? And mm-hmm. he said he felt like 
the curtain had sort of dropped, and he was asking that of his fellow actor, William Shatner, and it was it was like a blending of Spock and Leonard Nimoy. And it was it's fun to read about that sort of thing. Did you have any other impact moments or maybe like favorite scenes or anything like that that stand out that we haven't talked about already? Ah, I think we might have covered. I mean, there, it's hard to pick a favorite scene too because like there's so many good scenes in this film. The dinner, oh, it's just so wonderfully tension filled and trading barbs and you know it's like, well, I see we have a long way to go, you know. <laughs> and then there's that. Um, that scene when they're in the transporter room and Kirk's like, we, and you can tell he's just he, like, he's drank too much. He can barely keep his eyes. He's like, we must do this again sometime, you know? <laughs> uh, and, and, and of course they beam away and Scotty's a thank God, terrible <laughs> table manners. And you know, Spock is so frosty. He's like, I doubt our own behavior will distinguish us in the annals of diplomacy. You know, <laughs> it's just so good. Uh, <sighs> I just have a final thought or so on the, the experience, you know, I've really appreciated the journey through the films as further exposure to Star Trek. And again, it's a universe I want to explore. <laughs> I just have to find the time to watch 800 episodes of TV, <laughs> <laughs> which I mean, I guess if I watch like two a day for a year, that'd get me almost all the way through. <laughs> oh, you can take it slower than that. Like it's yeah. all going to be there. It's all online. It's yeah. fine. Just take your time. And I can even uh, I can even point out to you episodes that you can avoid if you want, because there's with that many episodes, you know, there's some bad ones and there are some doozies. Yeah, I've seen some <laughs> abridged watching guides for like next generation for people who are preparing to watch that show in uh, preparing for Picard. Yeah, basically with the next generation, you can skip almost all of seasons one and two, except for one or two episodes that are very good uh, especially um there's an episode with data where data's humanity is on trial i wish i could remember the name of it because it's a really good episode ah measure of a man there we go the measure of a man it's a fantastic it's it's like one of the few good episodes in the first two seasons of next gen i don't know how that show survived with the first two seasons it had anyway <laughs> <laughs> well if that's all we have to say that's the end of the 89th episode of cinescope thanks for joining me tj it was wonderful to to talk to you about this film. You know, I, I wasn't even sure, as I was taking my notes, I'm like, I'm so familiar with this film, I don't even know how to talk about it. Yeah, I've, so, I've I th had that I think feeling it went before. Well. Yeah, like, Back to the Future is one of those, <laughs> I, I sat down to watch, or to write my first review of Back to the Future once, and I was like, oh, what what do I say? It's It's my favorite movie, it's really good, go <laughs> watch it. <laughs> yeah, it's a weird position to be in, and I felt that way with Star Trek 2, if I remember right as well, so it's, it's yeah. difficult, because you're like, I feel like we've already talked about all this, but I know a lot of people are tuning in to hear what I have to think about this. So right. <laughs> how do you talk about it? Yeah. Well, let's go ahead and go over some contact information. Facebook.com slash Cinescope Podcast or at Cinescope Pod on Twitter. Please go over to Apple Podcast, rate and review and subscribe so you're notified of new episodes as they come out. If you have longer form feedback or ideas, you can email the Cinescope Podcast at gmail.com. And as I teased earlier, I just launched a Patreon page for the podcast. If you're not aware of what Patreon is, I don't know how, but what Patreon is, is a subscription service, basically, uh, where you can choose to support the podcast and me for a certain amount of money every month, $1, $3, $5, or $10 are, I think, the tiers I have set up. And there are various bonuses that you get from those tiers. There's just a simple thank you. And there's logo stickers. There's bonus episodes. Like we had some extended conversation before we started talking about Star Trek today. And we'll probably talk even a little bit more after we're finished talking about Star Trek today. And that will be condensed into a bonus episode for people who want to hear more stuff. 
I'm just going to try and make it as valuable for you and your time as I can. So head over to Patreon. The link is in the podcast show notes, or you can go to patreon.com slash Cinescope pod. And that's all I got to say about plugs. TJ, how about you? Where can people find you online? Well, first of all, I recommend helping chat out with Patreon because I can tell you having done hundreds of episodes and, you know, podcasts and having to kind of lay it aside because it wasn't making me money. It takes a lot of work and effort to do a podcast. <laughs> it does. So go support Chad. Thank you, TJ. <laughs> <laughs> um, I don't really have much to plug. I guess you can follow me on Twitter. I'm TJ Draper Pro there. You'll get an earful of all kinds of whatever's on my mind, really. It's kind of a it's, it's kind of a stream of consciousness. Like right now I have a new iPad and it's both good and bad. Apple is frustrating sometimes and I'm complaining about that a lot right now. <laughs> like why like why have they not gotten third party keyboards working yet after what, six, seven years they've had third party keyboards? I don't understand. Anyway. <laughs> that's me on on Twitter. That's uh, you know moviebyte.com, except it's not up right now. You and I were talking about that earlier. I need to get that back up. Yeah. I, I am talking about launching a new podcast, but it's still very early days. Uh, but that if, if that goes up, that'll be on um, uh, nightowl.fm. <laughs> and so uh, I can't even remember the name of my own site. Yikes. So nightowl.fm. Uh, my friend Joe actually has a, a podcast that he's been doing weekly that he's putting up there with his friend. Uh, it's about uh, genetics. So uh, yeah, if you're interested in that sort of thing. And it's, it's from a, a Christian perspective. So check that out if you're interested in that sort of thing. My show, uh, just to give you a preview, if it if it materializes, we're still again early talks, but we're talking about just reviewing uh, film scores. So uh, mm. it'll be hopefully within the next month if we do it. Okay, that sounds like fun. Everybody, go check out TJ's work. The best place to find me is at Chadada on Twitter. That is C H A D A D A D A. Facebook.com slash Chad.Hopkins is also a place where you can find things from me sometimes. And then there's my other podcast, which is wrapped up, but you can still listen to all of it. It is called An American Workplace. And we talked about every episode of The Office. So that was a lot of fun. Uh, show notes and contact information, including the link to that Patreon page, can be found at thecinescopepodcast.com. And that is all. Thank you, TJ. It was nice to sort of close out this Star Trek journey, although there's still lots more we could talk about. <laughs> we, we've closed out the original series. <laughs> That's right. We have. It was a lot of fun. It was. Thank you. Talk to you next time. Have fun, everybody, and celebrate movies. Bye.